From New York City, welcome to Mark to Markets. I'm your host, Mark Penziner. On this podcast, we discuss issues near and far from personal finance. You can always reach me directly with questions or comments at mark.penziner at bernstein.com or call me at 212-969-6655. Well, today's episode is going to be one of our longer ones. About once a year, I do a deeper dive on a topic, and today's topic is going to be cancer and oncology. And I'm going to approach this from three perspectives. One would be the patient and caregiver perspective. The second, from the medical advances and how treatment is evolving. And lastly, from the investor perspective. And I'm going to have guests on all three throughout to help inform you about where we are in the fight for this disease. So why am I doing this? Well, everyone has a cancer story. It's no one who gets through life untouched by it, either personally or through a friend or from a relative. And so let me give you mine so you have some context about how and why I'm doing this and who the people are that we're going to talk to today. So nearly five years ago, almost to the month, I was diagnosed with stage 3, 4 non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. It was a uh, tough time in life to be diagnosed with that. There's never a good time to be diagnosed, but it's worse when your wife, my wife, was nine months pregnant. And so I was diagnosed, confirmed on a midweek, like a Tuesday, Wednesday, we gave birth or my wife gave birth to our, our daughter, Ryan, on a Sunday, and I started chemotherapy on Wednesday. That is a life-changing experience for anyone. And so I spent the next six to nine months of my life with Columbia University, and you'll hear from some of the people there on this podcast, going through surgeries, multiple rounds of chemotherapy, and ending with a bone marrow transplant in October of 2015, almost five years from now, which knock on wood has me in remission and likely cured of the disease. And throughout that journey, you you meet lots of interesting people. And as I said, there's never a good time and concurrent to that to make the time in my life even crazier. My father was also being treated at Columbia for what became end stage sarcoma. So we were frequent flyers of Columbia University Presbyterian as we talk about it um, in my family's life. That all said, You do learn a lot about yourself and about science and about medicine throughout that, and it's become a um, sort of side field of academic interest for me. So today, I'm going to have Ellen Nalon, who was my nurse throughout this at Columbia University, join to talk about how you should think about it as a patient or a family or friend of someone who is diagnosed with cancer. What do you do? What should you think about? How should you think about treatment? How do you think about second opinions, all the really practical things that hopefully you don't have to ever deal with, but if you do, you want to know. Then I'll be joined by Adam Waldman. Adam is an executive at a biotech company, and when I was diagnosed, he was at Celgene, and he was one of the first calls I made to say, hey, uh, you've been an expert in the blood cancer industry for 20-plus years. I've just gotten diagnosed. Help. And he was invaluable in his guidance through that. He's going to take you through the state of the industry today, how treatment is evolving, how cancer care is evolving, and and why it's really an interesting and exciting time in the fight against the disease. And and then lastly, you know, there is an opportunity as an investor, and, and I say on this podcast, it's near and far from personal finance. As an investor, medical treatments, technology, biotechs, drugs are a major economic opportunity. If one company or another 
finds the cure to any or all of the cancer and cancer-related um, diseases, or, or, or frankly, the side effects from cancer-related treatment, those are really interesting investment ideas. Those companies are going to be wildly profitable. And so I bring in Patrick Saunders, who ran the healthcare practice at D.E. Shaw, to talk about how you think about biotechs and pharmaceutical companies from an investment perspective. You know, if you were an investor, early stage Celgene or Merck or you name any of those biotechs that make it, they can be wildly profitable for you. But if you invest in one of these um, companies that has an emerging technology or drug in phase one, phase two, phase three, and it never gets to market, there's, you know, very likelihood chance that you, you lose your investment. So, so how do you think about investing in what potentially is a very lucrative but also volatile space? So it's going to be a longer podcast than usual. There'll be three sections on those three different parts. I hope you enjoy it. I hope you find it informative and um, a resource for you should you ever have to deal with um, what is a very difficult and challenging thing in your life. All that said, I'm going to turn it over to my interview with Ellen. Ellen is an oncology nurse practitioner from the Center of Lymphoid Malignancies at Columbia University. She's also practiced at NYU and Memorial Sloan Kettering. And probably what makes her most famous, especially to me, is that she was my nurse throughout my treatment in 2015. So, Ellen, it is a pleasure to have you on. Thanks, Mark. It's great to be on. So, Ellen, I want this podcast to be, or this section of the podcast, to be informative for family members, friends, those who are diagnosed or caring for someone with cancer. And obviously, that's a scary word. I would imagine maybe less so than when you started in, in the industry 20 years ago. How has the patient care and treatment very broadly changed? So when I started 20 years ago, uh, I don't think that we had individual treatment plans as much as we do these days. So everything is very targeted to the types of tumors that each patient has. And so there's not really a general diagnosis anymore. So when you hear somebody say that they have breast cancer or they have a specific type of lung cancer, it's very specific these days. And so therefore we have specific treatments that go with that diagnosis. And I, that's really how in my mind it's changed a lot. Does that make, you know, I, I, I guess when someone winds up, well, hell I know when you wind up in the situation, the first question you want to know is like, what, what are my odds? And I would guess as the treatment has gotten so much more individualized, has it made it harder to, prognosticate or predict someone's potential outcome because we now know more about how different everyone's own disease and treatment are going to be? So that's a great question. So how I was trained is um, when we first start looking at a case, we look to see if it possibly can be cured or is it just the option of it can be treated and extend someone's life. So that's the first thing that we look at. And then because it's gotten so specific with types of tumors and different diseases, there's been a lot of research around how uh, one person could possibly do with that type of tumor that they have. So as much as we have general outcomes, we also now have more specific outcomes. And, and the treatments that generally I think people think about, but not without getting into immunology and all the really advanced stuff, but the traditional chemotherapy, radiation, surgery, have, have those changed in terms of the, the side effects? Have they gotten better? Uh, you know, you, you're really there day to day with the patients as they go on this process. 
have you seen that the the journey, for lack of a better word, has gotten a little bit easier or at least the symptoms better managed because we've also made progress on, on that scorecard too? Yeah, so I think what the best thing is is the communication between the treatment teams and the patient. So if the patient holds back and they don't tell me that they're having horrible nausea when they go home or they feel terrible while they're sitting there getting their medicine, it's really hard to change all of the medicines that we could possibly change. Um, so the communication is huge. There's a lot of new nausea medicines. There's a lot of trial and error that goes into using those new medicines. So you kind of need to sometimes try and fail one to get to the next one. But because of the variety of them, that's an option these days. In the you know 20 years ago, we didn't have as many options to use. So once somebody was you know, use or try one medication and it didn't work for them, we didn't have medication two, three, and four to try. So the communication, I think, was a big part of how I would always tailor the medications or the change of medication towards somebody getting treatment. It's funny. I mean, I, I was really worried about the nausea thing. And, and I remember you or someone on the team said, like, yeah, it probably won't be an issue. We've got a whole toolkit to deal with that and it basically was never a part of my story just because you guys had you know a lot of different levers to play with right exactly and then once you find the thing that works for you that's what we stick with so we don't keep changing it throughout the treatment plan like once you find your medicine or your cocktail or the combination and some of those combinations are given in the office when we're giving the treatment and then some of them are to take home so if you can find the right combo in the office, sometimes you don't need as many take-home medications. And the communication, I think, is a really great point. I remember the the first time we I did chemo with your team, there was like a, a knob that changed the rate of which you got the drugs. And, and someone said, like, okay, once you get to this point, like, tell us anything feels weird. I was like, eh, nah, nothing feels. And then, like, my neck hurt, like, totally randomly. I'm like, well, I've been sitting in this chair for six hours. So I was like, I probably, I guess, should tell them. And you guys were like, yep, yeah, no, we were waiting for something like that to happen. And and then you just kind of right. changed the speed of the cocktail. I was like, it's my neck. You were like, doesn't matter. That's something's a, a, a telltale for us. We, you know, like, you know what exactly. to look for. Yeah, right. And so when you're doing it for so long, so some of, you know, you were great because you told us right away. But some folks do just blame it on sitting in the chair for six hours and then their neck begins to hurt. And that could be a possible reaction to one of the medications. Um, and so the communicate, just letting the team know what you're experiencing or what you're feeling and letting them decide if it's related is a huge um, benefit to having a one-on-one treatment um, nurse standing right there with you, you know. So, so people listen to this podcast, this may surprise you or the listeners from all over the country and, and actually all over the world. Um, I, I was fortunate that in New York, Columbia, Cornell, Memorial Sloan are, are all right at my fingertips, for better or worse. If you don't live in one of the major urban centers or you're an hour or two away from, from an MD Anderson or a Sloan or a Columbia, it, do you think from your experience it's critical that someone go to one of those or is it, or is it more critical if you have a certain diagnosis? Like how should someone think about where they should go? I think any diagnosis for each person is, is critical. So the minute you hear the cancer word, I, I think it automatically 
um, triggers panic, and it also triggers an unknown world that's going to happen for the next possible year of your life. And in so my personal opinion of seeing so many cases, and I did specialize in lymphoma, but in seeing so many cases and hearing um, friends and family with other diagnoses, I second opinions are a must. So you can see your local person, uh, your local physician, your local oncologist. You can get those opinions locally, but to have that specialized center and that specialized doctor confirm that everything is accurate and that you do you do have a treatment plan moving forward that is going to work and that it makes sense and that it's structured. I mean, we follow guidelines. So mainly, you just need to make sure that those guidelines are being met for your case. But the biggest reason for a second opinion, and I can't stress this enough, is the pathology review. So no oncologist at one of these larger centers, be it on the East Coast, the West Coast, um, Central, uh, anywhere in the state, is going to look at your case without your pathology reviewed by their pathologist. So their doc is going to take a look at your cells under the microscope, and they're going to say, yes, we agree, this is that diagnosis. And here are all of the individual parts of this cancer cell that make it unique for this person. And then the treatment plan is built off of that. So in my honest opinion, yes, the, the meeting with the doctor at that larger center is important. But really what's important is that pathologist who's looking again at the cells of your, of your diagnosis. And, and maybe just a really practical piece of advice is, you know, for the patient or for the caretakers, make sure they get all the paperwork, the reports, if they can get the slides, because that, that's, the, um, that's the Rosetta Stone. That's the roadmap that, that any other second or third opinion is going to need, right? Right. So if by chance your pathology was um, – a different diagnosis than what the, what you truly have, your path, your treatment plan moving forward is built on the pathology. So if something was missed, if something was not written in that pathology report, your treatment plan is not going to be right. So the, for me, the most important reason for that second opinion at that larger um, center where that specialized group is, is because it's, it's full overtaking of they're looking at your path, they'll look at your radiology, all of your all of your um, scans that you've had done, they'll look at your blood work, and then they'll look at you because they'll sit down with you and actually have that conversation. So I, I think that that's the, the biggest um, advantage is that you get, you don't need to get therapy or treatment there necessarily, that's, that's an individual choice, but um, the review of it is, is gives you an insurance policy going forward that you say and you have to feel comfortable with the treatment plan so that's it that's an important distinction that it's you may not necessarily need to be treated at the major metropolitan cancer center or university but but it's good to have their eyes on it because if the if the plan they're recommending is the same as locally then then i'm guessing it's probably not a disadvantage to do it locally exactly so you can have confidence we have a lot of people who come and get a second opinion at larger institutions and then they'll go home to their closer hospital to their oncologist near their house and get their therapy there. So they don't need to come and see the bigger institution to get the 
the chemo. Some people choose to get their surgery at the bigger institutions, and then they'll go home to get their radiation or their chemo. Um, some people do that combination, or and then some people choose to actually travel to that bigger hospital and get everything there. I guess this relates to the question of do the do the top places, any of them, do they have access to different drugs or cocktails or trials, and and that might be a reason to. Um, I don't know, get second or third opinion. I was going to say shop your case, but that's a terrible way to think about it. But but just so that you you know that, you know, um, Columbia has something that Cornell doesn't or Memorial Sloan or Hopkins, or is that a relevant way to think about this? Or is that just kind of wasting time when you should get treated? So no, so I alluded to before some diagnoses, uh, we follow a treatment paradigm. So we follow guidelines. And so some of those guidelines, depending on the diagnosis of the patient, the first treatment guideline is a clinical trial. So if the diagnosis that somebody has falls under that treatment plan, so the treatment plan would be, you know, the first treatment is a clinical trial. So that means there's nothing bona fide for that specific case or for that specific disease. So the best treatment moving forward is a clinical trial. Then you would need to explore where the clinical trials are happening for that disease. And that but, could be, that could be locally or not, right? Correct. So sometimes those um, clinical trials are only at big institutions because they might just be, um, you know, a phase one or two where they're not all around the country. They're only at some um, locations, maybe like four or five locations throughout the country. Um, once the study is a little bit more advanced. It can be at multiple locations in the country, um, but they could offer different um, ideas. So when you go and you have that second opinion, it's not always in, I, I was always of the mindset that we're not always thinking, okay, what are we doing for our first therapy? Because if and when that doesn't work, there has to be a backup plan or the next plan. So when you're seeing that specialist at that bigger institution, you also want to say, okay, what other ideas do you have for my case if this first idea isn't going to cure it, isn't going to be the winner for curing it? So what's the second option? What's the third option? And that's when you're going to hear that that institution might have different access to different medications, such as clinical trials, such as new drugs that have been approved, such as experience with new drugs that have been approved. So that was a very common thing um, back a couple years ago. A new drug came on the market. We had a lot of experience giving it, and other smaller institutions um, around New York City didn't have as much experience. So we had a lot of folks come in to get the drug from us because we knew how to give the drug. So our experience of our nurses and our docs, they, everyone knew how to administer that drug. Better than other places. And administer doesn't, I'm assuming here, doesn't necessarily mean injected into the body. It means the follow-up and, and the levels of the dosing yeah. and the side effects, not not just physically, you know, the entering of the body, but, but how you manage that, right? Exactly. So the management of the side effects. So a lot of the medicines now could be in pill form, um, but pills can be as upsetting to the body as injection into the body. So some, you know, so you take this pill or you take two pills every day, but you can still feel terrible. So the side effects of taking a pill still need to be managed. 
so the experience that our team had with managing side effects was it wasn't something all teams had so we did have a lot of patients come and see us for the side effects management and and even though it's a pill it, it may still be considered loosely chemotherapy it could be yeah it could be or the new way of thinking of it is targeted therapy although um, chemotherapy is a broad term for that so um, usually we still as a therapeutic we still refer to it as a chemotherapy yeah all right um, last two questions it's the same question in two different flavors what's the best advice that you've given or you've seen given to the patient so to the patient I would say always have someone with you so this this is from your first visit to your last visit sometimes um, on those first visits that you're seeing um, the new team uh, it's very overwhelming there's a lot of information being discussed and shared and asked of you uh, and sometimes when you get home and you talk about it with friends and family you miss big segments and big chunks of what ha what's happened during that visit and um, a lot of a lot of times families will call back and they'll say, what exactly happened during this visit? Because we're not really understanding. So having a second set of ears in the room or a third set, I mean, you can't fill the room with too, too many people, but having, uh, you know, one or two people come with you to the visit, to the treatment, um, accepting help. I think that that's the hardest thing when, when it is happening to you, it's hard to say yes to friends and family who are offering help. And uh, so what does that help look like? So you, you go ahead. You, no, I, I was going to say, I mean, I think you, 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 you nailed it because um, it's like the night after my, the night or the second night after my first treatment, my, my calves swelled to like the size of uh, an 800 pound man. And I was like, this is not good. And I had I, I went to treatment with my brother, as you know, and I called my brother and I was like, this, this cannot be good. We got to call the hospital. And he's like, Ellen told you this is going to happen. This is exactly what you were to expect. Like, just you're fine. And I have no recollection of us ever having that conversation because you probably said something right. a minute before that. My brain wandered and I, I honestly never heard you say that. And my brother was like, no, you had this conversation. And if I had been there alone, that would have been a terribly scary night. Right, right. And it, it alleviates fears. That's exactly true. So by having somebody there to, one, be your cheerleader, to, you know, run and get you something that you're craving at the moment while you're sitting there for the treatment. But three, just to be that, again, that second set of ears. So whether you're there in the office for treatment or you're seeing a doctor, you're getting results. Like results day is a huge day to be, to have somebody there with you. That's a very scary day until you hear what the fan has to say. So it, I think that that would be a definite thing I would recommend for um, for patients. But for patients and for family members, I think going back to accepting help and always if somebody asks, what can I do or can I do something, always say yes. So I, I feel like over the course of my years of doing this, it's very hard to say yes, because then somebody's going to want to, the follow-up to that is, what can I do? So by saying yes, you're opening the door for your friend, your family, your coworkers to help, but then they kind of 
need to figure out what exactly to do. But saying, no, I got it, or no, we, we don't need any help, no, or it, it gets very burdensome to everyone involved, the caregivers, the family members. Um, so I, I think that changing the, changing the answer to yes, it doesn't mean you have to have a task for the friend or coworker right then, but it just means that you, you've left the door open for you can call them at any time for help in the next couple months. And I'm going to end this with the the inverse question, which I think you already touched on. If you're the caregiver, mother, father, daughter, son, spouse, um, what's the what's the thing you would tell them? Because they're they're often un, uh, overlooked in this process, and and it may be even harder for them to ask of you because the patient has the one on one relationship with the with the physician. So so, what advice would you give to the caregiver? Right, so I think for the caregivers, we, um, you know, we love them. They're at home a lot. I don't see them a lot in the office. A lot of the caregiving takes place between, like you said, moms and dads, brothers and sisters. A lot of other family members get involved in caregiving, and they're behind the scenes. So I may see the patient, and like you said, your brother came with you a lot. Um, but I didn't see your whole team every single time you walked into the office, all of your caregivers weren't with you. So taking the time to, if you have the opportunity, if you feel well enough, and if you feel comfortable enough to invite one of those caregivers with you to an appointment. So they know what, what does the treatment chair look like? What is the pump that you always talk about beeping? What's your doctor look like? Why do you say he's funny? Why do you say you were laughing with him? Like that's all unknown territory for them and it can be scary. So introducing them to the area that you're in to get your treatment. So if you were to be getting radiation, like what does that look like? Why does it only take three or five seconds? Like that's very unknown to a lot of people. So introducing them just to the general area where all that happens, they can kind of picture you in other visits going to the office, going to get your treatment. Um, I, I think that alleviates a lot of fear that they may have. Ellen, th- this was awesome. I, I really appreciate you taking the time. I, I put you on the list of, of the people who I, I'd say I, I never wanted to meet, but I'm very glad that I did. And so thank you for all your help then, and thank you for taking the time now. Oh, you're welcome. Absolutely. I want to move the discussion to changes in cancer care, to drug development, and the cutting-edge therapies in the fight against cancer. To do that, I'm delighted to bring in Adam Waldman. Adam is the Chief Commercial Officer at TG Therapeutics, an oncology biotech company. Adam has over 20 years' experience in the field, holding senior roles at Shearing Plow and Celgene. And Adam was one of the first people I called when I was diagnosed. And his knowledge of medicine, the research, that was invaluable to me and my family. So first and foremost, Adam, thanks for that. I'm forever grateful. You got it, Mark. Uh, No problem. Pleasure to be here. Adam, thanks for joining. So how would you describe the state of the the industry, very broadly, oncology research today? Yeah, I mean, you know, listen, in in the world of of oncology, I think we're probably in the midst of what I would what I would term an incredible era of innovation that's creating real value to patients. Um, You know, I think. you know, cancer deaths are falling. Um, there's improvement in, um, in therapies, and we're, I, I assume we're going to talk about this, but, you know, we've gone from surgery to, to radiation to chemotherapy, and now we're in the age of immunotherapy, which is, 
which is a really exciting uh, time. And you're seeing real, real uh, impact on patients' lives. So you, you beat me to the question. I, I was going to ask, I hear this term immunotherapy a bunch. You brought it up in simple terms because the people listening to this aren't, aren't in your field. What is immunotherapy? Yeah, it's essentially trying to harness your own immune system to fight the cancer. And it is, you know, incredible. Your immune system is an incredible system. Um, and, you know, if you think about it, I, I, the most simplest way to think about it, and this, this helps me, is like your body is your immune system. Your, your T cells are constantly surveilling your system for invaders. And when they see something, they go after it. What's interesting about cancer is it has a very good way of evading your own immune system. And so what's happening now is that the, you know, the science is, is trying to figure out, like, how does the cancer evade the immune system and how can we disrupt it and almost give it like a software upgrade so that it doesn't evade the, uh, the, the T cells in your immune system so it can kind of attack it um, from within. And, and so there's been just incredible um, progress made in that area. So I, I was going to ask about T cells, and it, there's been a lot written about this. So it's activating the, the T cells to almost be like a, a heat-seeking missile to attack the, the, the cancerous cells? Yeah, that's right. So, um, you know, T cells are, are what um, attacks, you know, anything that gets into your, your, your system that's foreign. Um, but the thing is with cancer cells, you, they go, they, uh, think of it like, uh, airport security. Um, and, and you go through and, and basically the T cell looks at it and says, okay, you're good to go. And somebody comes in and goes, no, nope, I gotta, I gotta take this guy out. He's got a gun. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna attack him. What happens when the cancer cell comes through is they look at it and it looks normal. Uh, that the cancer cell has ways of evading the T cell. And so what's, what the, where the real progress has been is in disturbing that process that allows the cancer cell to evade the T cell. And so by, uh, by inhibiting, uh, the, the ability for the, for the cancer cell to avoid the immune system, uh, you're able to see, uh, you're able to enable your immune system to attack the cancer cell. Um, and that's like therapies like Opdivo checkpoint inhibitors, like uh, Keytruda and Opdivo. Um, this is what you know. This is what you hear a lot about in the in the uh, in the media. So you're one step ahead of me. I was about to ask you about Keytruda and Opdivo. They're you they're um, they're immunotherapies at their heart. Yeah, absolutely. And and yeah, they've been blockbuster drugs, right? Oh yeah, without question. Um, you know, and, and the thing is, is they work in multitude of cancers, right? So they're not, um, they're not just for one cancer. They're, they're, they're really because of the way they harness the immune system, they're able to attack all kinds of cancers. Um, and so that's why they're such big commercial successes because they work in, uh, lung cancer. They work in, uh, bladder cancer. They work in, uh, a whole host of different cancers that uh, uh, that they're being used in, and that's why they're such commercial successes. Is there more progress being made in blood cancer or a solid tumor? Are, are different parts of the industry seeing different levels of progress? Yeah, I mean, listen, I think I think uh, the, the blood cancer space, the hematology space, has seen um, you know tremendous progress, and and um, 
you know, probably have to ask physicians this, but I, my, my guess is they would say in the world of hematology, you are getting closer and closer to being able to at least functionally cure some of these diseases. Um, solid tumors have been um, not as um, probably as successful. Uh, some have, but but um, areas like uh, lung cancer and prostate cancer and others have have lagged a little bit behind. But I think over the last five years, with the uh, the introduction of some of these immunotherapies, especially in lung cancer, um, and we talked earlier about you know the cancer death rates falling. Um, I think in large part it's because of some of these immunotherapies and the impact they're having in, um, in a disease like lung cancer, which is, I think, the, the most prevalent of, of cancers. So I, that's what I was going to ask. It, cancer rates, there was an article last month that cancer deaths or mortality rates are, are falling at their fastest rate in years. What do you think is driving that? Is, is it the drugs? Is it, um, I don't know, pe- people's... Um, the ability to, to catch stuff earlier? Is it people's lifestyle choices, uh, smoking or exercise? What do you think is is starting to turn the data better around disease? Yeah, I mean, my guess is it's, it's a little bit of all those things that you mentioned, right? I mean, I think um, earlier detection and screening, um, I think that, um, you know, decreases in smoking, um, uh, have uh, especially um, had an impact, especially on lung cancer. And then, you know, as a biotech guy and a guy in the industry, I like to think that the drug industry has had a big, a big part in in helping as well with some of the new medicines that's come out. What's driving the optimism it, beyond just immunotherapy? I, I get the feeling that when, when you and I talk outside of here, that there is a, a real sense of excitement when you go to these national um, conferences and you're and you're with pharmaceutical industry about the progress that's been made. Is it really just the immunotherapy space, or or is it more broad than that? And and are we at uh, potentially an inflection point where we haven't been for 20, 30, 40 years in, in where this is going? Yeah, I mean, I see, I see it as an inflection point. I, I see the last, you know, few years, uh, as I mentioned, I, I think it's been an incredible era of, you know, learning about the immune system and how the immune system can help. But I think people are, are very excited. Um, some of the, uh, the impact that we're seeing on survival rates uh, with some of these therapies are sort of unheard of. And, and the, you know, in, in the past, you just wouldn't see it. So, I think people are getting really excited about the potential of yeah, immunotherapies, but you know, CAR T's and, and um, you know, genetically modifying your T cells and um, other types of therapies like that. And I think we're just scratching the surface around what uh, it means uh, to have progress in immunotherapy. Is is the progress because? Um, the science or the technology, the instrumentation has changed, or, or maybe it's the mapping of, of the human genome and DNA, or, or is it financial? There's more money in the space. What do you think is the is the critical mass that has gotten some of these research breakthroughs through? Yeah, I mean, I think it's the science, right? I mean, I think the science drives everything, um, and I think that um, you know, from what I understand and what I've read is that, you know, the funding into biotech has been over the last five years has been at record levels, right? Because of the excitement of the science and the potential. 
um, a little bit of a perhaps uh, a bubble of, of biotech investment, and, and um, but but I don't see it slowing down. I think there's incredible optimism around new technologies, new therapies, and what uh, impact these things can have. Um, and so I think that's driving the investment. Um, I've heard the term cancer vaccines. I'm assuming that's not like um, a vaccine you give an infant so that they, they don't get uh, measles at some point. It, uh, if that's wrong, how do I think about the term cancer vaccine? Yeah, I mean, you know, that's, it, it, to be honest with you, it's not my uh, particular area of therapy, but it's, no, it's not like you would get, uh, it's not like you would get, uh, everyone would get a measles shot and, and be vaccinated. Although, you know, there are, um, uh, you know, there are, uh, like, if you think about the, there's a uh, Gardasil, for example. Um, which is a vaccine against the human papillomavirus, um, which is known to cause many, um, or at least a precursor oh. for many future cancers, right? That yep. could, could cause cancer, right? Um, and they are recommending that kids get vaccinated. And, and you know, uh, I, I'm, I'm certainly not an expert in, in cancer vaccines, but that just is one area where, you know, yeah, I mean, the, the, the vaccine against the human papillomavirus may eradicate some cancers from ever happening if we were able to get the high levels of vaccination. I'm going to ask you what is a personal question, but but hopefully an easy one. Why'd you get into the space? Oh. You know, that's a great question. So, you know, for me, you know, the ability to, well, I'll, let me go back a, a couple of, I was going to go to medical school, but quite, quite frankly, I, uh, I just didn't deal with the blood very well. Um, so, you know, I, I sort of thought, okay, how can I continue to try to help help people, try to uh, have an impact on health uh, without having to deal with the trauma of, uh, of uh, you know, blood and, and other types of things like that. So, you know, I went in a different direction, and I, I think I found a space, especially in the area of cancer, which is just, you know, it's about, you know, finding new therapies. And, you know, in my role, it's about, you know, ensuring that patients can have access to these therapies. Um, and that's been a, a large part of what I've dedicated my career to over the last uh, 20 years. Let me just follow up on that. When you say patients have access to the therapy, what does that mean? I, I think for someone who's not in, in your world, that, that they're like, wait, what? I just can't go to CVS and pick up what, what he wants. What do you mean by that? Yeah, well, you know, um, drug pricing has been a, a topic of, uh, of uh, intense debate over uh, time. Um, and I think, you know, we talk about it in terms of, you know, how do we get patients to therapies in their hands despite whatever financial situation they're in? Um, there are, um, you know, patients that, uh, uh, you know, drugs, there's no question that the price of drugs can um, be a, um, be a, a big uh, impact on their, their financial situation. So, you know, we find ways to support that. Uh, we find ways to uh, help patients find financial aid um, and ensure that, um, you know, mostly that the, the physicians and nurses and support teams are well-informed of the information to make the right decision for the right patient at the right time um, so that they can prescribe the drug, and then we do everything we can to support making sure that the patient can actually get the drug once uh, once it's prescribed. And what we try to do is make sure the financial situation does not um, stand in the way of someone getting 
uh, access to the therapy. But that's an important point. There are a, a thousand, and I'm making up that number, drugs out there, and it's important for people like yourself to make sure that research centers, doctors, whether it's in the big city or your local community, know what's out there so that the, the, the right drug can get in the hands of the right patient at the right time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we like, you know, listen, you know, I think, I think everyone plays an important role in the ecosystem of, of getting a patient, the right drug at the right time. Um, there's, there's, there's doctors, there's nurses, um, there's office managers, there's advocacy groups, there's all kinds of, of people um, that touch um, the, that are part of the ecosystem that ensures that patients get the right therapy at the right time. Um, I like to think that the industry and uh, companies that I've worked for play an important role in that ecosystem um, and are uh, part of it, uh, help to educate, help to educate people on our drugs and make sure they have the most up-to-date information so that they can make the right decisions. Adam, I really appreciate your time. This was incredibly helpful and informative, and I, I thank you for doing this. Uh, it's a pleasure, Mark. Anytime. Thanks. We now turn our attention to investing in the cancer and oncology space, and to do that, I'm happy to be joined by Patrick Saunders. Patrick's been a senior vice president and healthcare portfolio manager at D.E. Shaw, and he spent his entire career in the healthcare space. Patrick, thanks for joining Thanks, Mark. Uh, I'm going to ask you a question that, that may seem really basic, but I've asked it already today of a healthcare provider and an executive in the oncology space. What's the big news to you as an investor in this space about what's going on today? So I think if, if you sort of spoke to, to healthcare investors, I think the majority of the focus is just on the, the pending Democratic primaries. Um, specifically Iowa and New Hampshire. And the, the reason I raised that for all of healthcare, but it's, it's relevant for, for therapeutics, especially biotech, is because of, of the potential fears around Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders winning the nomination, um, specifically because their potential victory or either one of them securing the Democratic nomination is going to raise um, a reasonable amount of fear among investors uh, as it relates to future government negotiation of drug prices. Um, and that has a few form, you know, that, that's the sort of Democratic primary is one example of that. And then there's been sort of renewed uh, fears, at least in the sort of healthcare uh, microcosm of, of investors that I interact with about um, the, some of the pre uh, presidential uh, executive orders that the current administration could take throughout the election process. Um, as it relates to to resetting drug prices in in Medicare, yeah. um, so that would that would sort of be the one macro issue. I think in terms of want to discuss innovation. I think if you look back over the last uh, probably three to five years, the, the, the most exciting development has been the rise of these immuno oncology uh, therapies. The the most notable one is or, or two would be uh, Merck. Katruda and uh, Bristol Myers uh, Optivo, um, and they've the, both of those therapies have just made dramatic strides in in, in extending life uh, in various types of cancer, most notably lung, but also you know a, a, probably a half dozen to a dozen uh, different types of cancers beyond that. Um, in terms of looking forward and in, in innovation within within biotech, in addition to to you know oncology, I think some of the other more exciting areas would be cell therapy. Um, 
gene therapy and, and probably RNI therapy. Now, now gene therapy and RNI therapy are probably less relevant for at least oncology today. Um, but but cell therapy would 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 certainly be up there. There's been some uh, logistical challenges with with a couple of the recent launches there from from Gilead and uh, Novartis. Um, well, and, and potentially um, uh, Celgene Bristol, Bristol Myers was one product that Bristol acquired from Celgene, uh, which is probably too too granular for this discussion, but but hopefully that provides some. But, some but let me ask the, the maybe the larger question. So you just touched on a, a number of different avenues of, of excitement. Would that have been true a decade ago, or is it true that there's more innovation, or maybe the term is more promising innovation today than there was a decade or two ago? Yeah, I, I think that's that's indisputable, and it's sort of not it's not just limited to oncology. I think it's it's sort of the entire biotech landscape. So, um, one one data point that I believe you and I have discussed is, or at least I've, I've maybe mentioned, is just if you look at the types of companies that are going public today relative to five to ten years ago. So, all all of the companies that are that are going public today, they're garnering higher market caps in general they're able to raise more capital and they're in i would say in general more innovative um and and argue because they're more innovative they're earlier stage so i think if you if you looked at and this is all you know data points from either banker analyses or there's a couple of trade publications for example biocentury and i think maybe stat news or one of these other um healthcare publications publishes publishes this type of, of data, but I think it's a, the average sort of market cap of, of the biotech IPOs in, in 2019, I think was in that sort of $800 million range. Um, and just for context in sort of the two, you know, 1999, 2000 biotech bubble peak, that, that average was, I think, $1.2 billion. Um, or, or 1.2, 1.3 So it's not that far away from what we think of as the, the crazy times. Exactly. But it, I, I mean, that was also around the, just the, the cusp of sort of the first time they were um, sequencing the genome or the human genome project. Um, I think, and then sort of for, for further context, the, the sort of average market cap of a lot of these biotech IPOs, if you go back, you know, four years or so ago, was under 400 million. So you sort of have this bubble in, you know, 1999, 2000, where you had the valuations go out of control to, to that sort of 1.2, 1.3 billion dollar range. They reset to, you know, the average IPO valuation being probably in that sort of 200 to 400 million dollar range for a good 15 plus years. And then over the last three years or so, it, it started to creep up or they basically been oscillating between that 400 and 800 million dollar range with you know, last 2019 being 800. Um, so that, that's sort of one very tangible um, sort of piece of evidence of, of just the recognition from investors of, of being able to invest on some of these new innovative therapies and the, and the potential future promise. Is there um, a distinction between a healthcare company or the healthcare sector and the biotech? I feel like we all might use them interchangeably, but, but there's a distinction on the street between the two. Yeah, so I think if, if you just looked at healthcare, so the, the way if, if you are a specialized healthcare investor, you, most guys carve up the space into four or five subsectors. So biotech is one of those subsectors, and then pharma would be another subsector, and then medtech would be a third, and services would be a fourth. And then depending, you know, 
most people would probably include the life sciences tools and diagnostics companies, either in, you know, traditionally the guys included in med tech, but there's a lot of people that include it in biotech because they're effectively providing the tools for a lot of these um, research projects uh, or sort of the, the R&D stem that is, that is um, sort of required to, to develop these drugs. Um, and then within biotech, people further sort of classify that uh, subsector in terms of the traditional large caps, which, you know, are basically morphing into large cap pharma companies, uh, with the most recent example being Celgene selling or merging with Bristol-Myers, with Bristol-Myers being a traditional large cap pharma company and Celgene being a traditional biotech specializing in in oncology and immunology. Um and then, the, then there's as you go down cap, you have the mid cap biotechs, which you know would be the like Insight, uh, Vertex, Pharma's of the world that are sort of have made brand breakthrough innovation in one particular therapeutic area, and they're sort of in the process of maturing, um, and, and potentially trying to make that jump from not only developing one or two drugs, but but hopefully be becoming sustainably profitable and adding maybe a new leg of therapeutic expertise. To the stool, to the proverbial stool, et cetera, um, and then you go down, you, know, you go further down cap, and you have, probably, you know, hundreds of public companies that are in that sort of sub two billion dollar market cap uh, space, where the majority of them, um, I mean, a handful of them will be commercial, meaning they've navigated the FDA approval process, um, but the majority of them are, are pre-commercial. And what I mean by pre-commercial is the drug's not approved. So their drug or their technology is somewhere in the range of, of um, you know, pre, pre-clinical testing, phase one testing, phase two testing, or phase three testing. And in order to get a drug approved, you, uh, for most indications, you need two successful, statistically significant phase three clinical trials to, to, to garner FDA approval. Now, if it's a large indication like a diabetes drug or a new blood thinner, you're more often than not those, those companies, you know, have a half dozen or more stroke, uh, clinical trial, phase three clinical trials um, that are that are evaluated by the FDA. But if you're a sort of quote unquote breakthrough therapy, and this is also a technical term that the FDA recognizes in terms of breakthrough designation, and which is most often for diseases where there is no current. That's like you get fast tracked, right? When you're breakthrough. Yeah, or, or, actually a different designation from fast track but it all has the same goal of of trying to expedite the interaction with the fda and and expedite approval and and giving patients access to that therapy uh but where, what i was going to say is if, if it's you know for most oncology drugs if it's an unmet need that phase two study if, if it's if it's if it's an innovative enough drug or an un, if the unmet need is high enough and the phase two is, is relatively thorough, that can potentially serve as your pivotal study or your approval study so you don't need to run another uh, phase three or, or whatnot. And there's some other issues there, not only in terms of patient need, but also just the, the ethical question of running, you know, obviously running a placebo-controlled trial in, in oncology you, you can't do, um, or if you're running that, that comparative arm as a quote-unquote stale um, therapy or, or, you know, a aging standard of care um, that creates some other issues. Um, here's a, here's a question. For, for, uh, I was just going to say for context, that phase one to phase three or phase approval process, that can be anywhere from, you know, 
several years to a decade. And it sort of depends on the number of trials and on that need, you know, if it's an orphan drug or oncology, it's hopefully towards that shorter, shorter end of the time frame. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure that this process of getting FDA approval is incredibly costly. Right. So could you put some context yeah. around how much money you need, how much capital you've got to raise to get through one, two and three? Because I, I, I'm guessing, you know, it, it doesn't exist in the oncology space, but the proverbial two guys in a garage can't get FDA approval. Yeah. So so there's sort of you, you, you get a different answer depending who you ask. There's There's been a handful of studies on this. I think the, the one that most uh, industry guys cite, um, I think it was done by someone out of Tufts. And it was, it basically arrived at the conclusion of it cost, it was well over a billion dollars. I don't know if it was a billion, a billion, 200 million, et cetera. Uh, but, but it all goes down to the, the very, or I guess that your cost estimate goes down to the, to the number of inputs. And sort of one of the flaws of that study was that they were including all related costs or amortizing related costs of failed studies and failed drugs that never made it to market, which you could argue is fair that they should have included that because obviously not a, not every drug gets approved. And some of these companies will spend hundreds of millions of dollars to, to, to garner approval um, for, for certain indications. So I think it, it sort of depends on the indication. There's been this tough study that's over, cites over a billion dollars. But I think you've, we've also seen some examples in oncology, if it's a targeted therapy or orphan, if it's an orphan disease, which is not necessarily oncology, but high unmet needs, where the, the clinical trials are much smaller. These, you know, there's potentially a few, you could maybe get away with a few hundred million, but that's, you know, totally off the top of my head in terms of that estimate. But um, on the flip side, some of these high, you know, the traditional blockbusters, if you go back to like the Lipitors and even now, like some of these blood thinners, that, that have been developed by, you know, Jane J. Byer, um, Crystal Myers. I'm, I'm sure that, that that sort of cost to develop and, and uh, execute those clinical trials through approval was, was over a billion dollars. Are the innovations, and then I guess the, the stock opportunity, better in the small cap or small startup companies, or is the innovation and the opportunity as an investor also in the Merck, Pfizer, J&Js of the world. And has that changed over the last decade or so? So, so for me personally, um, I, I do not have a medical background. Um, I've worked with numerous people that, that are MDs and have um, masters in, you know, biochem, et cetera. Um, so, so I'm probably not the right person to answer that, that sort of pre-commercial biotech question. I will say that majority of these, um, Pre-commercial bets are are in names that are in that sort of sub two billion dollar market cap range, and that you know the majority that there's they definitely represent sort of the most binary risk in terms of if their phase two or phase three is successful, that stock could easily go up 100 percent even more. But also, if it's not successful, they could just be a one drug program or one drug company and and the stock could trade to cash or below cash um so there's certainly more uh binary risk there i think in, terms in those of, small biotechs it's a much more riskier space big risk big reward exactly exactly um i think that that's 
I, I'm, I think that's always been the case. I don't know that that's really changed over the last five years. I think one, one area that may have changed among the small cap biotechs over the last five years is just the rising power of, of the payer. And what I mean by that is um, you now have the majority of, of the commercial insurance markets controlled by three or four insurers. And these are insurers that, you know, you have United Healthcare, you have CVS Aetna after the most recent merger, you have Cigna Express Script. The, I mean, the, I don't know their market shares off the top of my head, but they are able to control pharmacy benefit as well as medical benefit. So basically, no matter where the drug is administered, which gives them increased control over which drugs they reimburse them for, how much they reimburse them for, as well as various step edits and prerequisites that patients have to meet before they qualify for a certain therapy. Um, and what that has done is made it increasingly challenging for these single drug companies to actually commercialize these therapies by themselves. Um, meaning, you know, the same drug, if it's, if it's commercialized by small, small cap biotech A versus the same drug commercialized by Biogen or Celgene or Pfizer is going to have a dramatically different rate of success and trajectory just because those larger cap companies have you know, they have core expertise in, in negotiating payer access. They have a portfolio of oftentimes hundreds of drugs, at least dozens of drugs, if not hundreds of drugs that, that payers need to have access to, which gives them sort of an equal seat at the table in terms of negotiating payer access and, and, and pricing, et cetera. Um, so I, where I'm going with that is I, I think in many ways, there's just as much quote unquote binary risk for a lot of these small cap biotech if they choose to commercialize those therapies themselves once approved. Got it. Uh, and you've seen that with, with it's sort of a double edged sword because you see a lot of these small caps have, have, you know, at least a partially, uh, maybe a partial MA premium built into them leading up to the approval. Cause at that, more often than not, once the, once, the investor community has seen sort of phase two or phase three data. So I have a good sense that, hey, that drug should get approved or, yeah, this is best in class or, yeah, it's going to get approved, but it's not best in class. So that the investment community will have a decent sense of the FDA risk. And more often than not, you know, that will be reflected in the stock valuation. And then there's oftentimes a resetting of that valuation if the drug is approved and that company launches it themselves. Because at that point in time, you know, the market starts to believe they're they're no longer being acquired, or they're definitely going to be acquired. Um, and so we've seen this. You know, there's there's probably a dozen of these types of companies we've seen over the last year, where you know the launch goes really well, and their valuation inflects, so they almost price themselves out of a takeout. And that's that's sort of a you know that's a, a quote unquote good thing. Um, or the launches does not go well, and and you know the the valuation becomes significantly discounted because. No, effectively, there's it, it's a it's a referendum on uh, strategic takeout interest from the larger guys if no one steps in post-launch, even though most large pharmas and biotechs don't want to buy a company unless they can control the launch. Meaning they prior to you know upon approval prior to launch they control pricing, reimbursement, commercialization strategy, etc. Um, but then on the on sort of the, the, the sort of stepping back in terms of of uh, sort of potential upside with these with a lot of these small cap biotechs is 
a lot of the innovation for, from these large cap biotechs or within these large cap biotechs and large cap farmers is coming from these smaller biotechs that they end up acquiring. That's what I was going to ask. It, it has felt like to me as an outside observer on the space that there's a lot more acquisition by the big pharmas, the Merck, the Pfizer's, the Bristol Myers of the world buying these guys that you may or may not know to, to build an R&D portfolio and launch them. That, that's 100% correct. But I, I'd say there's, you know, each of those guys are maybe doing anywhere from a couple to a half dozen of those types of acquisitions a year, depending on their licensing transactions. But there's, on the other side of that, there's, you know, probably 40 to 80 or 90 biotechs going public, new biotechs going public every year. And that as a result, there's, you know, hundreds of these sort of small cap biotechs that are, um, really, really never going to make it, I guess. But, the kind of- but if you're a client who owns Merck or you're an investor who owns Merck and Pfizer and J&J and Novartis, and you want to have exposure to the oncology space, you probably have it deep inside those portfolios. Fair to say? Oh, yes. I mean, if you look at Merck, I mean, Keytruda, which is probably going to be the largest drug in the, in the history of the biotech space. Um, it isn't yet, but it probably will be over the next four or five years. Um, that I think the truth is probably 25, 30% of Merck's revenues now, and it's probably going to 40% of their revenues over the next five years. And it would, and would it have been like zero five years ago? I don't, I'm, I'm guessing. It, yeah. Right? Oh yeah. I mean, yeah. If you would have gone, I'm trying to think when it launched, but yeah, it's five or six years ago, it would have been zero or close to it. So that, that shows you just in terms of that drug alone. The dollar value uh, profitability, right? I mean, Merck's a big company. When you say one drug that could be 40% of their business in five years, that's kind of mind-blowing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but to answer your question, I mean, all all of these large-cap companies, Merck, Johnson & Johnson, Pfizer, they all have meaningful oncology um, franchises. So you will have have uh, exposure as an investor. And to, and to me, frankly, I, I think that sort of helps me sleep easier at night, having that type of exposure because – in addition to those companies sort of having that exposure to innovation, they're, most of them are also paying a dividend yield of, you know, three to five and a half percent. And they all have very healthy balance sheets relative to a lot of the other healthcare companies. So I think in terms of being able to, to park your money someplace, they're, they're, at least from my perspective, they I would be able to sleep easier at night than sort of trying to hit that the home run on on the small cap that because they, they could go up. It's, it sounds like these companies have home run quote unquote potential, but they've also got drugs and and general healthcare practices that are you could clip your coupon on while you wait. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Let, let me ask last last question. So you are a healthcare analyst in the space. You're a portfolio manager. That means by nature you believe in stock selection. I've got to think the the power of research in, in this space is probably as, as impactful as it might be anywhere. You agree? Yeah, I think that's a fair, a fair um, assertion. I think the one, the one element that's maybe a little bit different about healthcare compared to some of these other uh, sectors is, and you see this oftentimes in election years or not. And it may, I think it's going to be less relevant this year, but you saw it in sort of 2015 with that, that sort of infamous Hillary tweet is when there's large um, sort of uh, non-specialists involved in the space. Now, 2015, I think, was the peak in terms of inflows for healthcare and sort of uh, assets allocated to the space. 
you will occasionally see the quote unquote market freak out about the sustainability of drug pricing, specifically when politicians start talking about um, drug pricing risk. And that is, I mean, you saw the, the, the most sort of um, tangible example from at least my investing experience was the, the, um, the Hillary tweet in uh, whenever that was 2015. And then if you go back another, whatever it is, 10 years with the Hillary care where, there was that scare, but I think if in terms of a place like Bernstein that that does you know deep fundamental research and has a longer time frame, I, I think you guys have a have a uh, meaningful competitive advantage relative to to a lot of your peers. Patrick, thanks so much. This was incredibly insightful. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Mark. To our listeners, any questions on this or any other topic, I can be reached at mark.penziner at bernstein.com or 212-969-6655. Make sure to like us on iTunes or wherever you catch this podcast. Until next time.